I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to the Playing Footsie podcast. My name's Paul, and each episode, me and the lads get together to talk about the stocks, stock market news, and finance in general. Quick disclaimer, you shouldn't consider anything in this podcast as personal financial advice. If you need such advice, go to a financial advisor. And please remember, when investing in any form, your capital is at risk. So sit back, relax, and let the lads fill you in with all the stock market news of the week. The sucker's going up. Hi, everyone. Steve D and Steve W here from the Playing Footsie podcast. We're super excited with the show that we've got for you today. This week's episode is from the time that we sat down with Motley Fool contractor Brian Feroldi. Brian was a great guest, and we had such a good time talking to him about what he looks for in an investment, how his thinking as an investor has evolved over time, and some useful things to look out for in the stock market. Along the way, we talked about a lot of stocks. Some we own, some we don't. We didn't really go into depth on any of them, but if you're interested in digging further into any of the companies that we talk about on the show, we'd recommend that you give Genuine Impact a look. It's got loads of data points to get you started researching stocks, and it's a really good place to find out more about some of the stuff that we discussed. You can download it in the link below and get started for free. Anyway, that's all for now. Enjoy the show. Welcome everyone to the Playing Footsie Show. I'm Steve W. Steve D is here with me, but for those of you watching on YouTube or Spotify, do not adjust your sets. That is not Paul Briscoe. Uh, for those of you listening on Audible or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, that is Brian Feroldi. Uh, we are super excited to have Brian on the show with us today. He's going to be telling us all about his new book, answering some of our investing questions, and yes, we have a game at the end. So for those of us that have literally never listened to our show before, Brian is a contractor at The Motley Fool. His YouTube channel, which you can find by just typing Brian Feroldi into YouTube, has all sorts of inter um, interesting videos on stocks, businesses, portfolios, how to read financial statements, and so on. His Twitter feed, at Brian Feroldi, has all these really cool graphic illustrations of investing concepts and ideas. Um, so, Brian, welcome. Steve and Steve, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so, we'll just jump straight into the questions. We've got, a, we've got a ton we really want to ask you. I think the best place to start is probably with your younger self. Um, so, I mean, how did you get started in, or how did you get exposed to investing? What questions did you have when you get started? Boy, that's uh, I could go on a lot for about uh, that, but uh, I would say like like many people, or at least many people that I know, I was not raised to be an investor in any way. We never talked about uh, business or investing much at all in my house, and I was completely ignorant of many common terms that are thrown around today, like Dow Jones, S&P 500, uh, price to earnings ratio, etc. So I was a complete, uh, complete novice when it came to those things. In fact, the only time that I was really exposed to the stock market through my house as my dad was investing in some penny stocks uh, gr growing up. And he told me, oh, if this stock right here reaches blank dollars per share, you can get a dirt bike. So I was like checking it every day <laughs> to seeing like it going up and down, like being, please, please, please uh, go up. But it didn't reach dirt bike price um, as it is. Uh, but anyway... I went to college in uh, 2000 and like many people had no clue what I wanted to do for a living. I'm still figuring that out, uh, by the way. And uh, when I went to school, my, my parents suggested that I just go for a general business uh, degree because that is broadly enough to kind of cover a lot of, a lot of different uh, topics. So I said, okay, sure, that will be my major. But it wasn't like I was like passionate about business or accounting or business law or anything like that. It was more of a, this degree seems to be universally applicable to and open up plenty of options for me 
down the road. Now, when I graduated in 2004, I still had largely no clue about stocks or investing or, or money management. And I say that as a business major, uh, by the way, while we covered things like uh, accounting and law and marketing, we didn't really ever talk about the stock market much or how to invest or why you should or anything like that, which to me is just still mind-blowing uh, that, that, uh, that that happens. Uh, however, when I graduated, my dad handed me a copy of a very popular book at the time that was uh, surging. It was called uh, Rich Dad, uh, Poor Dad by Robert uh, Kiyosaki. And I read that book uh, cover to cover. For whatever reason, I was just immediately drawn to the material. Now, if you're familiar with that book, that book is a lot about real estate, uh, business ownership, borrowing money to buy assets, and it actually talks about investing in things like gold and penny stocks and all that kind of stuff. But if you take that part and put it aside, that was the very first book that I ever read that opened my mind up to a few incredibly important concepts, like you are in business for yourself, right? You can get rich in one generation. People get wealthy by buying assets, which are things that go up in value or produce income, by avoiding uh, liabilities. Your house isn't an asset, it's actually a liability. And all these concepts that I was hearing essentially for the first time, and they just immediately resonated with me. And that really just kicked off a love affair of learning about everything that had to do with money or investing or personal finance. And I just read every book and uh, podcast and audiobook and blog that I could basically get my hands on uh, ever, ever since. So that's how I was kind of first exposed to the idea uh, of investing. And for whatever reason, it's just a topic that lights me up to learn about it. Cool. So, I mean, you mentioned your time at going away to college and then learning about kind of investing and stuff and getting first exposed to that kind of idea. I mean, were you investing through some of the kind of uh, things that we associate from our perspective as being around the sort of 2000, 2008, the kind of dot-com crash, the financial crisis? I mean, did you see much happening there? And how did that kind of bear on you in your kind of formative days as an investor? Yeah, so when I first started buying and selling stocks, and I say buying and selling stocks because I wasn't investing, I was <laughs> buying and selling stocks, right? There's a difference between the two. I, I, I had no idea what I was doing, right? I was still very much a rookie. I couldn't tell you anything about how to find a company's financial statements, how to judge a business, how to how, anything that I like have come to associate with actually good uh, investing today. I was merely buying things that I thought I could sell later that day, week, or month uh, for a higher price. End of story. Like uh, the cup, that, that was the investing that I, that I was doing. However, during those first couple of years, I made tons of mistakes, right? I bought loads of absolute garbage uh, businesses that deserved to go down and I deserved to lose money of them because I was no idea uh, what I was doing. However, during that time, I, I still, even though I was having lots and lots of mistakes and I was losing money, I still was committed to the idea of putting money uh, in the market and learning uh, for myself. So I was still saving as much money as I could, putting that money in the market and investing it as wisely uh, as I could at the time. And I would say I kind of had a better sense of what I was doing in 2006 and 2007, which was, of course, right before uh, the 2008 uh, financial crisis. Mm -hmm. Uh, took hold. So I did have 
enough money in the markets during that time period that when the market tanked, it really sucked. Like it really <laughs> sucked and it stung and I saw all the saving and, and investing that I had done uh, previously just uh, not, not go up in smoke but really get pounded hard. But uh, one thing that I was doing at the time is my income had grown uh, pretty con considerably. My wife was working and we were, we were still in love with the idea of investing. So I invested, kept on investing throughout uh, the, the entire painful, uh, painful period. But man, did I learn a lot quickly uh, by, by doing so. Now, it was at that time, really in like 2008, that I started to really discover The Motley Fool and start to study under uh, David and Tom Gardner. I started to read their recommendations, and I, I, I remember the first time I read a recommendation that they wrote up and was like, holy cow, these guys do so much more research and have a such better understanding of business than I do on, on my own. And one wonderful thing about uh, The Motley Fool is not only do they make recommendations, but they have these thriving discussion boards uh, where you can connect with and talk to other investors from around the world, some of whom are extremely accomplished and super smart people that just share generously with their time and talk about mistakes they've made, how to analyze businesses, and just openly share information. And I would just spend hours, hours uh, every day on these discussion boards reading and connecting with other people and just learning how to uh, invest, uh, invest in, in the proper way. So that's really how I went from being a god-awful, terrible, know-nothing investor to being slightly less god-awful today. Do you think about, um, just, just, just harking back to the sort of the, the dot-com bubble, I think that's probably when you say you was most, you was most sort of beginning to find your feet with investing you had a lot of money in the market how do you feel about the sort of mood now to the mood back then so we went through a period where uh, especially like last year and the year before where the market tended to just go up and to the right and everybody was kind of really exuberant uh, and now you can see that the market's starting to follow especially the kind of stocks that um, we're invested in um, how do you feel about the general mood are you, are you tuned into the mood or do, or do you just ignore it is it is it not part of it is it part of your thinking so in general, I'm a business-focused investor. I'm not a stock-focused investor. So most days, I don't even look at stock prices or check my uh, portfolio. I'm focused on the underlying businesses, not necessarily their day-to-day, minute-to-minute, moment-to-moment uh, stock price movement. And I can tell you that while I started investing in 2004-ish, uh, and that includes up until today, uh, the two biggest declines that I uh, lived through was 2008. That was the biggest uh, by far. And... Uh, 2020. Both of those periods felt horrible. However, hmm. along that way, even during that wonderful period of 2010 to 2020, when stocks largely went up and to the right, there was still plenty of times during that nothing but bull market when I saw my portfolio get smashed for random reasons because many of the stocks that I uh, own uh, fell hard. For example, one of my biggest holdings uh, today is Netflix, and I invested through the Quickster debacle. And if you remember anything about that peak, the trough, that stock fell 80%. And that was during the period when it was when business was just going up in, into the right. So while it looks from the outside like my portfolio kept going up, when you dig into the details of the individual holdings, some of them got absolutely murdered uh, during the periods that uh, I held them. 
But to answer your question, what I've seen in the market over the last year has been unlike anything else that I've ever seen. Uh, in 2013, I think was the year, maybe 2014, uh, one of those years around there, there was a period when growth stocks or stocks that are really focused on growing their top line at the sake of uh, everything else, they went out of favor and they drastically lost to the market over a period of time. So the market was going up and by and large, my portfolio was underperforming during that period. As you pointed out, growth stocks were in vogue in, in 2020, right? It, it didn't matter what stock you bought, as long as its, it's top line uh, was growing, nothing else amount of business mattered at all. Like you were, gonna, you were gonna make money and the stock was going up. Over the last year, it's been the exact opposite uh, scenario. It doesn't matter how good the numbers are that's coming out of the company, that stock is is going down. And I think it's hard to say how much of that is fueled uh, by macro factors like interest rates and the Federal Reserve and inflation and how much of that is fueled by just retail investors who all of a sudden got into investing in 2020 for the first time and now they've seen kind of the flip side uh, of that. But what we've seen over the last, say, 20, uh, uh, two to three years has been extraordinary. So I guess one thing that interests me is you talked a lot about quote unquote growth stock uh, investing and anyone that's watched your videos knows that you're carefully focused on things that are growing their earnings, growing their revenues, growing their cash flows, those kinds of things. Have you always been a kind of growth style investor? I mean, when I sort of started investing, and it's not that long ago in my case, I spent quite a lot of time just trying on different ideas and working out what sort of made sense to me and what I thought I had the temperament for as much as anything. But have you always known you were a kind of growth investor kind of guy? No. Uh, I've tried many different styles of investing uh, over time. I initially started out in penny stocks, realized this sucks, this doesn't make money. <laughs> and then I went to the exact opposite side, or so I thought, which was high dividend yield stocks. Be like, all right, I'm no good at capital appreciation. Maybe I'll go for extreme dividend uh, income to kind of, I'll, that's how I'll earn my return. I'll settle, I'll settle for a 15% dividend yield, right? Well, it turns out I was still buying garbage. I just didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> that I was uh, buying garbage, so that uh, didn't work. And if you've studied business and investing for any period of time, you are, of course, going to come across Benjamin Graham, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, Seth Klarman, all of whom basically say things like, all intelligent investing is value investing, right? All intelligent investing is buying companies uh, for below what they're worth. Like that is all intelligent investing. So of there were periods of time when I focused very heavily on valuation and valuation was the lens that I looked at the world through. Uh, however, I was lucky enough to come across David Gardner and David Gardner's style of investing uh, during that time. So when I saw him make recommendations to buy companies like Amazon, which had a PE ratio of like 200 or Netflix, which didn't have earnings or Salesforce.com, which again had a PE ratio of like a couple of thousand percent. Every time he recommended those companies, I was like, what is he doing? What is he doing? Like, this is the dumbest recommendation ever. This company is not a value stock, right? There's no DCF model that you can put that says this company is a buy right now. I can't tell you how many times he recommended companies and I was like, pass. Like, no way, it doesn't pass the valuation filter. And then I watched what happened and many of the best recommendations that he possibly ever made were at prices that at the time, which would just be appalling uh, to a value investor, uh, myself included. In fact, it took, it took me about two years to warm up to the idea of investing in Amazon. 
not because I didn't think Amazon was an amazing business, but because every time I looked at it, I was like, too expensive, too expensive, too expensive, too expensive. I finally relented in 2010 because I was like, I just want to own this business. Every time you recommend it, 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 it goes up. This is just a good investment. And that was one of my best decisions ever, even though at the time, if you were looking at it solely through a value investor's perspective, uh, it just wouldn't have worked. And the more that I've studied the market and how the stock market actually works, I've learned that it's really a minority of companies. Uh, in, in the U.S., it's about 7 to 10% of companies that drive literally all of their turns of the stock market. So a very small percentage of companies are re responsible for 100% of the stock market's return over time. So what do those, those small percentage of companies tend to have in common? They're awesome businesses. Like they are just fantastic businesses. They have great leadership. They have great competitive position. They have great financial statements. They grow consistently over time, uh, etc. So by only looking at investments that I could make through the lens of a value investor, what was happening is I was excluding my portfolio from buying the best companies that existed uh, on, on the market. And that's just a lesson that I naturally had to learn the hard way because my natural bent as a person is to pay less for things than they're worth, right? I, I go to the grocery store and I try and buy things on sale. Like that just appeals <laughs> to me as a human. The idea of overpaying for something because it's really good is so backwards to my human nature uh, that it's been one of the hardest things that I've had to, to learn. So I now invest by looking for business quality first and valuation last, not because that's like the, what I thought uh, was the initial right thing to do. I've learned the hard way that that's the thing to do. So that is the current method that I invest with. Cool. So you've worked at a company that went public as well. Um, I think I remember you saying that on a on an earlier industry focus. Um, so so you've been on the other side of an IPO. Has that has that helped shape your investing? Does that give you some unique insight? Yeah, that that was a fascinating thing to go through. So I uh, right out of college, uh, I I got a job at a startup medical device uh, medical device company uh, called Insulet Corporation. At the time, they were one hundred percent funded off of venture capital. They did not have FDA approval, let alone uh, revenue. Um, and it was just a job that somebody offered me because I had a personal connection with them. That was my due diligence, right? It was, it was purely, a, um, okay, this, this sounds like a job that they're gonna hire a, a college kid to do and sheer luck that company has gone on to become phenomenally uh, successful uh, but in 2006 so two years after I joined the company uh, we had FDA approval we started to sell the product we started to commercialize it and we had revenue and we went public and that was a really really interesting experience we still needed money we were still losing money but I got to see kind of firsthand what it's like to be at a company that is actually going through the IPO process and I can tell you that was really, really good training for what can happen to an individual stock uh, over time. Because Ooh. when we went public, our company priced at about $15 per share. That was just the, the offering price. Within about six months um, of coming public, for no reason at all, our stock was at 27. So it went from 15 to 27. The company was doing good, but it wasn't doing 90% better in a six-month period. Ooh. Um, but I saw, all right, well, I don't understand why this is happening, but my stock options are well into the green. Everybody that uh, works with me at this company is really happy. All is good in the world. 
And then came 2008, and nobody wanted to own a money-losing company like ours that was clearly going to need more capital uh, for many, many years uh, in time. And I and my coworkers had to see the stock slide from $27 per share to under $3 per share. So that was a 90% loss, peak to trough, 90% over about uh, a 16-month period or something like that. And here's the crazy thing about that. When our stock was at $3 per share or under $3 per share, we were a better company than we were at $27 per share. We had more customers. We had more revenue. Our product uh, had, had, had clearly uh, established product market fit. Our margins were improving. Everything about the business was our, was demonstrably better at $3 per share than it was at $27 per share, but yet we still had a stomach a 90% loss. Now, if you were buying at any time during that period, 15, 27, or 3, you're up tremendously uh, today. The last I looked, the stock was over $200 uh, per share, so you got anywhere from a 8-bagger to a 100-bagger, uh, potentially, depending on what the stock is doing, and the company is still growing today, but that just showed me firsthand how the emotions of the market determine what stock prices are, not the underlying business fundamentals. However, in the long term, it's the business fundamentals that win out. Nice. Um, can we talk about your book for a little bit? Sure. Um, so your book's called Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? Um, who's it for to sort of start off with? So is it for people like me who have been investing since sort of just before the pandemic started or for people like Steve over there who are a bit more experienced or I mean, Paul is about the same level of experience as me. Is it for people who are just kind of scared of the stock market because they don't really know anything about it? Who are you aiming at here? So my, my, my goal for this book when I wrote it, first off, I didn't write it because I thought, hey, there, there should be another investing book in the world, right? I mean, there are literally thousands of investing books uh, out, out there. And uh, I, 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 I am not a good writer, naturally. I'm terrible at spelling. I'm really bad at English. So the idea, if you were to tell myself 10 years ago, you're going to write a book one day, I would have been like, no, I'm not. Like I got average <laughs> at best uh, SAT scores when it came to, to English. So let's just start with, uh, with that. Uh, however, when I first started investing, I had all these questions uh, in, in my head that just didn't make any sense to me. Uh, why does the stock market go up and down uh, every day? Why does it continuously go up? I've, I, the first time I saw the long-term chart that shows the S&P the, the S 500, it's just clear as day. It goes from the bottom left to the upper, to the upper right. And I'm like, that makes no sense. That makes no sense. Why is there this thing? that exists that magically goes up and to the right when all my life I've been taught what goes up must come down. How is there this thing that continuously goes up and all these smart people out there say it's going to continuously uh, go up? Why, is, why does that happen? And then I had some other like really basic questions like what is the Dow Jones Industrial Average? What is the S&P 500? Who gets the money when I buy a company stock? Right? I go out and I, I buy the stock. Does does the company get my money? Like, how does that work? Why are some pr stocks priced at $1,000 per share and others are $5 per share, right? These are all like extremely basic questions that I had when I first started, but there was never any book that was presented 
that explained them uh, to me in a really straightforward uh, answer. So I mostly wrote the book that I wish I could give to myself in 2004, but by kind of going through uh, that process, my goal for this is to really educate the people out there that have money in the markets and literally don't know any of the answers to the questions that I uh, just asked. So this isn't a book about stock picking. It's not so much designed for people that have been investing uh, for years. It's, it's designed for in America, at least. In America, there's about 100 million people that have money in the stock market. And I have zero data to back this up. I just know it to be true. I know if you asked 100 million of them, why does the stock market go up? 99% of them would have no clue. Like they would just have no clue what is the thing that causes the stock market to go up uh, over time. So it's really aimed at addressing people that are new to the stock market, really laying the foundation so that they can understand the extreme uh, basics about how the stock market works. Cool. So I was, uh, it's funny really, because we, we had the, the question about um, your username on the Motley Fool was actually typo, yes. isn't it? It's uh, Motley Fool typo. So. Was it, have you found it really difficult to, to write the book? Is it, is it something you've been working on for a long time? Yeah, so writing a book is extremely painful. Like, let's just get uh, mm. that out of the way. And I, I, my, my username is typo, T-Y-P-E-O-H. It's a misspelling of the word typo, if that gives you any sense of what I think of my <laughs> personal uh, selling, uh, spelling uh, skills. And I can tell you, when I first started working for The Motley Fool in 2015, I became a financial, I became a writer uh, for them. And it was just such a painful learning experience for me because I would spend hours upon hours on these articles and I would go over them and think that they were perfect and they would kick them back to me and be like, this is misspelled, this is misspelled, this is the wrong tense, this is the wrong use of this word. So I'm just really bad at, um, at writing. I'm better now, or at least less bad, uh, but yeah, writing a book is, is super, super uh, painful. Putting your thoughts down on paper and editing yourself is just a really hard, uh, painful thing to do. So it took me from start to finish about nine months of writing the book every single day um, before it was done. And done is in air quotes. And that's like when the words were on the pages. And then I had to go back and edit them and edit them and edit them. And I'm still actually editing uh, the book uh, now. So it's just been a real, it's taken about 18 months in total to get the book to, to where it is today. Wow. Yeah, uh, that sounds like quite the effort. Um, I think it sounds like something that would be really interesting to a lot of people UK side for what it's worth. I mean, you mentioned in the US your experience of people with money in the markets who don't really know why the stock market goes up. I think in the UK what we have is quite a lot of people with money in the markets who don't really know that they have money in markets because <laughs> yeah. it's hidden in things like their pension funds and they don't yep. really know what their pension mm. fund's in. They kind of have an idea that their pension fund is this sort of thing that goes up in a certain way. I guess in the UK, one thing I notice is that there's kind of a generational shift a little bit, the kind of generation that Steve and myself and so on are, are less afraid of uh, stock markets than our parents were. I mean, our parents didn't have the same opportunities to invest that we did, quite simply. They didn't have the same access to markets as much as anything else. And certainly in the case of my parents, they sort of viewed the stock market as this thing that basically crashes occasionally and everyone loses all their money uh, more or less so you sort of put your money in there and you never see it again or you see it again in sort of three months but about half as much or something yeah. uh, do you get a sense that there's similar sort of market participation in the u.s is there a kind of shift towards more people being involved or i get the impression the u.s has had more of a kind of exposure to markets and less of a fear of them for longer than we have uh so yeah, the one one thing that I've heard about uh, investing in general, and I, and I totally believe this, I think Morgan Housel was the one that identified this for me. He said, what the stock market does 
in your, when you are between your ten, uh, 10 years old and 30 years old, what, what happens during that period will leave an impression on you for the rest of your life. So if you came of mm. age during the 1970s in, in, in the United States, mm -hmm. If those were your formidable years, you saw 10 years of the market doing nothing but crashing, right? And inflation going up and the market was a terrible place to, to, to invest. So by and large, people that, that uh, came of age uh, during that period have a lower allocation of the portfolio to stocks than did people that came of age in the 1950s. In the 1950s in the United States, the stock market did nothing but uh, go up. Same for the 1980s and 1990s. By and large, it was a great time uh, to go up. So I would say that a lot of people impressed of the stock market just by the nature of how long it takes to, to realize uh, returns in the stock market is so influenced by what happens while they're paying attention to it, while it's like formidable uh, for them. And I would say very similar to what's, uh, what you said about the, the UK, so many people in the United States view the stock market as the same way. Uh, I know that I, when I grew up, I was like, uh, it's, it's a big gambling machine, right? People put money in, the whole, money, the whole goal is buy low, sell high, right? Buy low, uh, sell high. That's how you make your money uh, in the market. So therefore, Ooh. you're taking advantage of somebody else in the market. You're, you're buying from them low and you're selling to them high. And that's, and that's all it is. And of course, uh, that's not the that's not the, the truth uh, at all. If you are uh, the stock market, I, I truly believe is the greatest wealth creation machine of of all time. I mean, the stock market has literally enabled ordinary people with ordinary incomes to generate extraordinary wealth in their lifetime. It's it's actually not all that hard to become a multimillionaire in the stock market if you just save and invest consistently for a couple of decades. Like that's what it takes. Now doing that ain't easy, but that's at least a simple formula uh, to become become wealthy. But I just think that the reason that people have that view is that they've never been taught any of the basics about the market. Uh, if you were on the clock even 30 or 40 years ago, you had to have a ton of money to even be able to open a brokerage account. Buying and selling securities would cost 50 or or $100. You had no way of really educating yourself. You had no way of getting access to financial statements. This is true. In the United States, it was legal for companies to release information to some shareholders but not others. Like they could give uh, hedge funds, mutual funds, uh, insights into how their business was doing without telling the, the whole public. That only changed in like 1999. Like that's not that long ago that there was literally like insider trading in a sense um, and insider information was legal. Uh, so of, of course, when you learn about stuff like that, it's natural that people have a fear of the market and they don't understand uh, how it works. But I firmly believe that if you take the time to understand the extreme basics about the market, if you take the under time uh, to learn about what is it that drives stock price returns over time, it, it's not hard. It's not complicated. It's just that nobody has ever explained it to them. Yeah, yeah I guess that makes that does make a lot of sense, doesn't it? I think um, we, we have an issue back here where we have um, we have a fairly I'm going to use the word oppressive FCA, but this will probably get the show shut down. Um, but they all they 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 leave <laughs> uh, they want a message on every single financial product that essentially says something along the lines of past performance is not indicative of future performance. But with certain things, it is. <laughs> so we get that, and then we get the sort of flip side in in the UK of um, you know you can't beat the index. Now, obviously, we're all students of. Um, sort of David and, and Tom here who have quite quite regularly shown that that is something that we can do. Um, so what's your view on whether sort of ordinary people or, or, or 
retail investors should actually buy individual stocks. Yeah, so this is something that uh, I, I'm of two minds about. Uh, first off, uh, I, f I love index funds. I just love them. Like, if somebody comes up to me in, and says, Brian, I want to invest in the market, what should I do? I say index funds. End of discussion, right? Just, just, just put your money, just dollar cost average into index funds and you'll, the, the odds of you doing well are extremely high uh, over time. However, the reason I say that to people is because in my experience, 99% of people have no interest in money, no mm. interest in finance. They just want somebody to say, tell me what to do so I never have to think about this again, right? It's just a topic that bores them. However, 1% of people, 2% of people are like me and for whatever reason you're just really interested in finance like i literally enjoy reading 10ks i literally enjoy learning about businesses thinking through thinking through uh, business models, interacting with it in the real world. And just, I, I think it's like the, the, the stock market investing is one of the most fun games I've ever mm. cross, I've ever come across in my life. And oh, by the way, if you do well in this game, you can earn life-changing uh, uh, money. So I, I firmly believe that people that are committed to studying the market, learning about how to analyze businesses, and most importantly, can adopt a long-term uh, mindset and, and, and are willing to do it for years and years, uh, can uh, outperform the market. And it is worthwhile to go through and pick individual stocks. But for 99% of that people, that effort, they'll never follow through on it and they just have no interest in it. Um, so I, that's why I say to ev everybody, buy, buy index funds. They're fantastic. But if you're part of that weird 1%, stock picking can be great. So hearing about your enjoyment of this kind of thing quite leads nicely to our next sort of uh, question that we got lined up here. And it's, I guess it's a fairly basic question, but tell us about your favorite investment you've ever made and, and why it's your favorite. So I'm thinking it might not necessarily be the investment that's made you the most money, right? Or it could be. That's perfectly good reason. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking it might be something where you were right and everyone else was wrong or one where you really thought, yeah, this is the one that kind of showed me how things work or anything like that. So, yeah, favorite investment? Sure. Uh, I'll go with one that uh, I completely flipped my mind uh, about. And that's, that is happens to be the money that has made me the most money, although <laughs> that changes depending on the day, uh, right? And that's, that's Tesla. Uh, so when David Gardner made the recommendation to The Motley Fool in, I think, 2010, uh, to buy Tesla. I, I saw him in person a few, a few months out of that. And I was like, Tesla, <laughs> David, like the, the electric car company, uh, auto, auto companies have been graveyards, uh, for capital, right? This company is so small. It's going to get squashed. Nobody wants to buy electric cars. Like their only advantage is that it's, it's not, um, it doesn't produce emissions. Like, are you kidding me? Like I was literally doing that to him. And he stuck by his recommendation, uh, obviously. And over the course of about six months to a year, I gradually started to learn more about Tesla. I gradually started to learn more about Elon Musk. And I took a very tiny part of my portfolio and said, you know what? There's enough here that this might be uh, an interesting investment. So I became a shareholder of Tesla in 2011. Wow. And then I watched the company right and i saw the stock go parabolic right it literally i'll make up the numbers but directionally they're accurate it went from like 15 20 a share to like a hundred dollars per share in, in the course of like 12 months and when david sees that he actually gets more excited 
not less excited. Again, one of the backwards things about how, how he thinks as an investor, but he re-recommended the stock at like 50 or 75 or something along uh, those lines and it went up and that's when I really started to like pay attention and I actually added to my Tesla position and if you watch what happened between I think the years were like 2014 and 2019 the stock did nothing the stock traded sideways uh, it actually was down in 2019 compared to where it was in 2014, despite the fact that I was now following this company pretty closely. Elon Musk was becoming a celebrity. The financials were all, the revenue was heading in the right direction. They were launching new vehicles. It was becoming clearer and clearer and clearer that the company had something special uh, about it. But by 2019, the stock had not done much at, at, at all like it literally traded sideways even though revenue was up and to the right and in 2019 I said I think the market's wrong I, and I added significantly to my position uh, in 2019 because I thought that the, the, there was so much pessimism about uh, Tesla in 2019 and lo and behold then 2020 and 2021 happened and the stock I think went up 20 fold mm. in, in value and that my, my favorite thing about that is during 2020 I'm pretty sure Elon Musk tweeted Tesla's stock is too high. Do you guys remember yeah. that? It was like like yep. $400 a share, so split adjusted $60 per share. Tesla's stock is too high, and it's literally multi-bagged since uh, he, he tweeted that, which just shows you how hard Tesla is to value as a company. But I just love that that was a company that I was completely against when I first heard it as a recommendation, gradually changed my mind. I had to hold it for five years where it did absolutely nothing. And there were short reports coming out and there was so much pessimism. And yet then it went on to be one of my biggest winners ever. So that's a company that that's been so fun to follow. I actually, uh, I bought Tesla, I think $120 and uh, by about $600 and we're talking sort of, I think we're talking pre-split numbers here. I was like, I can't, I can't figure this out anymore. I'm going to exit this position and take my money. And then since then has probably been one of the biggest regrets of my, of my <laughs> life. It's, I mean, 600 pre-split is what, did it five to one or four to one? I can't remember. It's, I think five to yeah, one roughly. It's been a lot. There's a lot of money missing from my pocket. Um, so <laughs> just quickly jumping on to sort of your, your investing philosophy then. So how much of it do you actually attribute to David and Tom Gardner and, and all the other folks at The Motley Fool? Oh, hugely. Uh, they, they've impacted my, my philosophy on investing more than anything else. And it's not just David and, and Tom. Uh, they're, you know, one, one thing I love about the Motley Fool is the word Motley. So there, there's no like company line on how to invest or style or anything like that. They really encourage you to bring whatever, whatever thoughts that you have and share them and hold yourself accountable um, and just share, share publicly. So there's lots of wonderful investors at The Motley Fool, and they all approach investing slightly different. Some are very focused on dividends. Some are very focused on REIT. Some are very focused on uh, high growth. Some are very focused on uh, valuation, but they all kind of uh, share openly and, uh, and share their information and how their portfolio is doing and, and teach uh, openly. So I would say my, my, my style is very heavily influenced by uh, David Gardner, another investor that's at The Motley Fool uh, named Jeff Fisher, who, who went on to... To, um, uh, operate a hedge fund of sorts uh, uh, for them. And then another private investor who was behind the scenes um, named Tom Engel, who was just a contributor uh, to the discussion boards. But he, he Tom Engel, uh, retired, uh, worked for nine years, retired in the 1980s, and, and is like 
late 20s, early 30s, and has lived off his portfolio ever since. How? Because he's a fantastic uh, investor. And that's really, really hard to do and impressive. But he just shares so openly with how he does everything and, and his, his philosophies on uh, buying and holding and selling and all that kind of stuff just really resonate with me. So if I had to credit it to any three investors, it would be Jeff Fisher, David Gardner, and Tom Engel. Cool. Cool. Um, so I guess one last question and then we'll get into a bit of um, quick firing game fun stuff. Uh, the very first thing I heard of yours, Brian, was you were on the Motley Fool, I think it was an industry focus podcast, uh, and you were talking about Global E, uh, which was pre-IPO at the time, is now post-IPO and so on. Uh, and you mentioned lots of really attractive things about it, and it, I immediately sent a message to Steve about it. I was out on a run at the time, and I think I literally stopped what I was doing and took my phone off my arm and sent him a message saying, go and listen to this. Um, one of the things you kind of flagged about globally uh, was that at the time you were hoping you would get it at a kind of decent price after the IPO and that it might go kind of mad out of the gate um, early on with some enthusiasm. That kind of happened, I think. But, I mean, how do you figure out when a business is more than you want to pay for it? Yeah, that's a really, really hard uh, question to, to answer because, as I said uh, at the, the beginning of the show, valuation is, I would say, not my Achilles here, but it's been the thing that's the hardest for me to, to wrap my head around uh, personally. Again, I have a natural inclination to want to not overpay for things, but if you look back at some of the greatest investments of all time, they've been overvalued the entire way up and buying overvalued companies uh, has actually been really, really uh, a smart move. So my, my current thinking on, on valuation and companies like Global E isn't so much to focus on the valuation metrics, but instead to focus on the market cap of the company. And the market cap is just the, the, the dollar price of one share times the number of shares that are outstanding. And that gives you a, an idea of the total value of the equity. Now, a company like Global E growing very, very fast, huge opportunity ahead, very, very risky because it still hasn't fully proven itself out. And the valuation, even after coming down substantially uh, from its high, uh, from its uh, highs about a year ago, is still high. Uh, it's currently trading about 16 times sales. So for every dollar in sales, you're literally paying uh, $16 right now. And this company does not have like uh, insane margins that like justify paying that high of a price. Its margins are average. Uh, so, so when it comes to a company like that, instead of focusing on the price to sales ratio or something like that, I'm focused on the market cap. So the market cap of Global E right now is under $5 billion. And I would ask myself, okay, given the opportunity, what I know about the business today and the growth potential, if this company works out, if the, if the company executes and everything, like that, and everything works out, could I see this kind of business be worth $50 billion? One day, could it literally 10x from today's price and and be worth 50 billion dollars? Uh, well, 50 billion dollars is a is a big uh, is a big number uh, for sure. But a company like Block or Square, well, that company is worth 60 uh, billion dollars. So is that in the realm of possibilities? Yes. Is it a given? No. But is there potential for this company if it works out? to deliver 10 times my, my money if I took on the risk of buying at today's valuation. So that's how I would I would think about it. And rather than really focus in on, I don't wanna pay 16 times sales or 10 times sales or 20 times sales, I would say, I'm gonna buy a little bit of this now if I believed in the potential 
And then I would watch it and I would say, is the company executing as I, as I hoped it would? Is the opportunity ahead still large? Uh, does the company uh, meet and exceed? Is, is the thesis playing out even better than I hoped? Or is the company having a hard time uh, to execute? If the company was executing brilliantly and the stock price wasn't doing anything, then I would think about uh, adding to my position. If the stock was going down and the business was nowhere close to executing at the level that I hoped, I would chalk it up to being like, all right, I'm not going to add to this uh, p position. This is going to be a learning uh, situation for me. But broadly speaking, that's how I think about valuation. When a company has what I believe to be 10x potential, I really try and de-emphasize valuation and focus on the long-term potential of the business. Conversely, if you took a company like Apple uh, today, uh, Apple is currently worth 2.7 trillion dollars. And what's the best case scenario for investors? Five to ten percent revenue growth, roughly the same uh, earnings earnings growth, right? And that's like best case scenario. Apple is so huge that um, it's going to take it's going to be really hard for the company to grow at a above average rate moving forward. So because of that, the company's future potential is more limited just because of its sheer size today. So with a company like Apple, I would put valuation much higher up uh, on my list simply because what, what what's the best case scenario for that company? It doubles in five years, like that would be a really good outcome uh, for shareholders uh, for day. But it's like, all right, what else, what could go wrong? Well, could the stock be 50% lower in, in five years? That's, that's a possibility. So a company that's big, stable, mature, slow growing, I am very focused on valuation. A company that's dynamic, growing quickly, uh, has huge potential head, I am much less focused on valuation. I think that's probably one of my favorite sayings that I've, I've heard you say before is that a, a company under 5 billion that's growing fast, there's no such thing as being overvalued, providing it can keep the growth up. Yeah, again, a hard thing to wrap your head around. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, right? And, and it's like, it's like so that, that's what's so tricky about so many concepts in investing. It's like, what do you do in ABC scenario? And it's like, the answer is always, it depends, mm. right? Uh, could, could some companies you should absolutely focus on valuation and valuations that come first. Others, you should not focus on valuation at all. It's like, do you want to invest like a venture capitalist? Venture capitalists don't focus on valuation. They focus on the team, the product, product market fit, and how much they can make if they're right. Uh, Warren Buffett, he doesn't. He, he he's hyper focused on valuation, right? That that's how he invests. He's a value investor. So there's not a right or wrong way to do it. There's just times when I think you should emphasize it, and times when you should de-emphasize it. Absolutely. Cool. So let's finish up then with a very, very quick uh, blast through a round of stocks in a segment that we've decided that we're going to call Brian or Brian out. So here's what will happen. Steve and I will take turns reading out the name of a stock. Brian, just tell us whether you're Brian or Brian out. And just to be clear here, we haven't told Brian what stocks we're going to send him. He might not know anything much about them at all. If you don't know anything, that's fine. But give us a sentence or two if you like. Uh, I'll try and stick to the ones I put on this list. Steve will try and stick to the ones he put on this list, I think. Mm -hmm. Steve, take it away. So I know you've done a video on it recently, so feel free to point us to that one. But good RX. Brian. Uh, it's a stock that I hold. Man, has it been creamed mm. uh, recently, but I think the business is still good. <laughs> cool. Cool. Perfect. Uh, Tencent? Uh, bright out, not because it's not an amazing business, but because it's gargantuanly big and uh, investing in China is just hard. Uh, how about the Stripe IPO with a hundred billion valuation? 
Bry out, likely because I would have to believe that that could be a trillion dollar company at a hundred billion dollar valuation so. for me to get interested in it. So f I'm I'm very confident when I read through that company, I'm gonna like everything. Yeah, like I'm gonna like everything about <laughs> it. But whether or not I want it in my portfolio is another question. Uh, let's try something a bit different then. Next era energy. Uh, Bry out personally because that's just not a, co a company that appeals to me uh, but if you're after mm -hmm. um predictable growth dividends and potential market beating returns great company mm -hmm. how about cryptocurrencies uh another one that like tesla i've changed my mind on completely uh two years ago i would have said completely out i now own some bitcoin and ethereum and plan on buying more so brian mm-hmm uh nvidia uh, a phenomenal, phenomenal company. I have chronically undervalued just how high quality that business is uh, for many, many uh, years. So I'm not a semiconductor kind of in investor, and that's been a mistake because that's been a fantastic place to be. But for me, for right now, Bry out. Nanox. Oof, tricky one. Uh, I mean, if, if you were to like, <laughs> of all the companies that I own, and I do have a tiny, tiny piece uh, of that one, that is the pure lottery ticket yeah pure lottery ticket right it's like is this going to work or is it going to not and i it's like completely up in the air right now so i would say uh bry out for new capital but if they get fda approval and produce revenue brian oh wow uh tyler technologies not a company i know well but i think that's been one of the best performing stocks over the last 20 30 years that exists so not one that i know well but Winners keep on winning, so Brian. How, how about Amazon? Well, it's one of my number four holding or something like that, so I better be Brian. <laughs> uh, another one that I think you hold, but I don't associate with you particularly then. Last one, I think. Uh, American Tower. Oh, yeah. Uh, fantastic. Fantastic uh, company, uh, amazing uh, business model. It's been a fantastic performer. It's a REIT, it pays a, a dividend, uh, high growth. Uh, Chuck Aker, who's a fantastic investor, this has been one of his top holdings for like 15 years, and man, has it been a compounding uh, machine. So uh, I only own a, a small little bit of it. I'm not gonna be adding anytime soon. So Brian, but yeah. Cool. Brian Feroldi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for playing. Um, it was really, really great chatting with you about your book. Uh, where can people get hold of a copy? Uh, Amazon is the best way, to, easiest way to, to buy things, so it'll be available there. Uh, international stuff is, I'm not an expert on each individual country, but my, my go-to is go to Amazon. Uh, if it's not there, go to your favorite retailer. If it's not there, send me a message on Twitter. It's definitely there. I have seen it. It's there for pre-order. Um... And I think they've mm -hmm. got, what's the release? The release date's next month, is it? Is it? Uh, April, April 5th. Yes. So uh, one, one more month. Congratulations. I'm very excited. Man. Thanks. <laughs> Perfect. Brilliant. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Um, thank you, Brian, for joining us. We've had a great time. Uh, do drop us a review and a like below. And do go and check out Brian's channel and his Twitter and his everything else on The Motley Fool. I'm amazed how many people own stocks. I'm amazed how many people own stocks. The sucker's going up.